You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. As you know, Audible is the Internet's leading provider of amazing audiobooks. And with over 100,000 titles to choose from, everyone can find something to love. But for now, you can just try it for free with a free trial membership that lasts 30 days. And, of course, you get a free audiobook. You can cancel the membership at any time or, after the 30 days, select one of their membership options. But either way, you keep the free audiobook. This week, I would like to recommend something different than what we're talking about since I pretty much recommend all the books that Audible has about the Battle of Britain. I would recommend getting any of the books by Barbara Tuckman, T-U-C-H-M-A-N. I've already recommended her Stillwell and the American Experience in China, and of course she wrote the famous The Guns of August, but she has other titles on Audible, and any of them would be a joy. But just to balance that out, you should check out The Cane Mutiny by Herman Wouk. I think it's come out recently as far as Audible. Of course, it's been around for a while, but it is a classic. It is amazing, and you will learn a lot about life in the Navy. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II, Episode 55, Battling Friends and Foes Alike. The battle for control of the Channel in southern Britain was intensifying, and nerves were straining. It wasn't simple fatigue, and it wasn't only affecting the pilots. Everyone connected to the contest on both sides was suffering from very little sleep and combat exhaustion. The symptoms for the latter that could be seen were rapid weight loss, the inability to sleep or relax, and being violently startled by any loud and unexpected noise. 
Some pilots try to defend themselves by not getting too personal or too attached to the replacement pilots coming in. There was a good chance they wouldn't survive their first aerial combat, and a great chance they wouldn't survive the first five sorties. Yet for all this, everyone continued on. There was no other choice. The leaders of the pilots felt the strain too. Their fears and anxieties were just as real as the pilots. Keith Park of Eleven Group was certainly feeling it, but did his best, like everyone else, to remain professional. But it became harder as the battle went on. Pilots wanted revenge when a friend was lost, especially if it was discovered that the victim wasn't treated correctly according to a general sense of fair play once he was helpless, like when he was coming down in a parachute. Likewise, their commanders, like Park and Lee Mallory, were unable to always keep it professional when working together to save their country and win the war in the best way they each thought possible. In truth, Park and Lee Mallory never got along, and it was probably just plain chemistry. But now, they were supposed to be on the same side, with Lee Mallory, along with the other group leaders, rendering assistance to Park as he was controlling the most attacked section of Great Britain. But there were screw-ups in between the groups as the battle for Britain went along. Some were because of machines, like when radios messed up, but some were human errors based on differing views of tactics and strategy. And Park, for the most part, was trying to handle differences through proper channels. The most recent example of this was his instruction number 6 of August 26th, in which he wanted squadrons, right before they engaged the enemy, to call out their position and the size of the enemy formation, in case other squadrons already in the air could lend a hand. And it was to start the next day. But Tuesday, August 27th, got a slow start to the contest. The channel had haze and clouds that morning, but both cleared by the afternoon. The relatively quiet day came down to Kesselring's men being as exhausted as their opponents. Kesselring had no reserves and realized that, although his men were undaunted, they were now simply used up. So instead of the usual tricks and multiple attacks, he had the men take off, form up, and try to harass Eleven Group. But Park, who didn't see anything too threatening, i.e. no large amounts of bombers coming over, only sent up fighters when something seemed substantial. Still, they managed to shoot down three German aircraft that day, without losing any of their own. This meant that the total recorded losses to date were still 328 for the RAF, and now 618 for the Luftwaffe. Of course, there was combat going on of a different kind. That day, Park issued another instruction to his group, that if any of their airfields were threatened, and within reach by 10 or 12 group, that those groups should send reinforcements to assist. These requests had been happening, but there was not always an appropriate response, especially from Lee Mallory's 12 group, just north of London. 
We've already covered Lee Mallory's belief that it was best to gather several squadrons together before sending them over. It was his idea to overwhelm the enemy. But this meant, at least twice, help arrived too late, and the airfields in question sustained heavy damage. To clear this up, Park wanted the request for help to go through Fighter Command HQ. In his instruction, Park praised 10 Group to his west, but said of 12 Group, Up to date, 12 Group, on the other hand, have not shown the same desire to cooperate by dispatching their squadrons to the places requested. This was a direct criticism of 12 Group's leader, and their battle was just heating up. That night, bombing was widespread, but lighter than of late. Damage varied, and by morning, around 50 people were found dead, and another 150 wounded, as the German bombers tried to locate industrial centers and RAF airfields. They managed to avoid London, for the most part. On the high seas, at least four British or Allied vessels were sunk. Some crew members lost their lives, some were wounded, some were rescued, and the rest were taken prisoner. With the morning of Wednesday, August 28th, Kesselring was ready to move against Fighter Command again. His men gladly took the time they were given, but it was imperative to keep the pressure on the British fighters and their defensive organization. The weather was mostly clear, but cold, and this made the German pilots focus, more than usual, on making sure they did not end up in the channel. Reconnaissance flights took off just after 6 a.m. and took pictures of potential targets for the day. By 8 a.m., there was the normal build-up of formations over Calais, and just after that, a large formation started crossing the channel. Just as they were within sight of land, the formation split. 33 Heinkels with 120 ME-109s as escorts made for Rockford, just north of the Thames Estuary. The rest headed for East Church, just to the south of it. Park had four squadrons respond to the threatened Rockford, but unfortunately for them, one of the squadrons was 264, made up of Defiance. Just as the Defiance made for the bombers, Adolf Gallen, the number two ace of the Luftwaffe, dove down and made for them. Within a minute, three of their numbers were removed from the skies. Two more barely made it home. Both raiding groups made it to their respective targets, scoring some victories on the way, but losing comrades as well. But more importantly, both raiding groups did little damage even though the Dorniers over East Church dropped more than 100 bombs. It's not clear if the German bombers knew how unsuccessful they were over Rockford, but it didn't matter as they were back just before 1 p.m. After fighting their way in, the bombers managed this time to leave 30 craters in its airstrip. Rockford would be unusable that night, and could only allow aircraft one at a time to land the next day. As for 264 Squadron, Defiance were done as daylight fighters. Their five remaining serviceable planes were sent north to 12 Group. The third raid that day was one of Kesselring's better tactics. 
using at least 100 ME-110s and 120 ME-109s. He got them to simulate bombers by manipulating their speed and height as they flew up the Thames estuary. Observer posts were not able to clarify anything, so Park sent up six squadrons. A nasty dogfight ensued, as Kesselring was hoping for, but he couldn't have been happy with the results. Five RAF planes were shot down, but 14 of his own failed to return home. Before this raid, the day had been going the Luftwaffe's way. Of the 28 RAF losses for the day, two of them had been shot down by their own AA guns, and one of those was Alan Deere. This was his eighth scrape with death. His plane was hit, and before it could catch fire, he bailed out near Detling. He was found and driven straight to his base at Hornchurch. Because he was not injured, at least physically, he was expected to be ready the next day. Deere was angry by this announcement, but not surprised. That evening he wrote of how his friends looked, with their haggard expressions, and dared not look into the mirror. He didn't want to know how he appeared to those around him. Around 7 p.m. that evening, another, though smaller, raid would try the same approach and sneak up the Thames. It worked, but each side suffered fewer casualties this time. Losses for the day were 28 for the RAF and 30 for the Luftwaffe. Total reported losses to date were 356 and 648, respectively. Now that British bombers were coming over to Germany proper, or an occasional exuberant British fighter would chase a damaged bomber back over the channel, the German fighter pilots were told that the noses, cowlings, rudders, and wingtips of their aircraft were to be painted bright yellow. Being in the military, the men were not told why, and assumed it had something to do with organizing them for the upcoming invasion of Britain. Only later would they find out that it was really to help their AA gunners distinguish friend from foe. It wouldn't be long before those yellow-nosed bastards could be heard over the radios of the British pilots. But this directing of anger at the opponent's plane was coming to an end. The war among the clouds was getting personal. With that mysterious sense of timing that many of his contemporaries wrote about later, Churchill chose the 28th to visit the defenses along the south coast. He visited Manston and a few others before letting it be known that he was most displeased with the cratered runways he had come upon. And instead of letting others like Park or Downing decide which airfields would be repaired and when, he minuted that craters were to be repaired within 24 hours. Was it military prudent to say all airfields were equal? Well, that really wasn't the question. The man who claimed that every inch of Britain would be defended wasn't about to give up on anything he didn't have to. That night, the Sperla bombers hit fewer places, but hit them hard. His focus that night was the Midlands, the horizontal strip that made an arc from Shoreham to Selsey Bill, up to Liverpool, to Sheffield, and down to London. 
And because most of these raiders flew back over London on their way home, the capital was under a red-light warning for at least seven hours. Their targets seemed to be the industrial centers of the Midlands, like Birmingham, Coventry, Derby, Sheffield, and Manchester. That night, Liverpool received its first major attack as 150 bombers dropped their loads there. The Luftwaffe might have done a better job that night of avoiding London proper, but for Churchill and the War Cabinet, it was a moot point. That night, Bomber Command would bomb Berlin, along with five other German towns, as well as a few airfields in France. 83 Squadron had the honor of going after the Nazi capital, and about 70 other bombers would make for the remaining targets in Germany and France. As 83 Squadron flew back home, they left the Gorlitzer Railway Station damaged, along with eight dead and 21 others wounded. Upon hearing this, Hitler returned to the capital, enraged. The next day, he would give his bombers a free hand regarding London. Mine Lane was plotted to the east, the south, and the west. At least two British or Allied merchant vessels were sunk that night of the 28th. Thursday, August 29th, started out very quiet. In fact, Kesselring did nothing for the first part of the day, besides reconnaissance and weather flights. The day would have some clouds and rain, with sunshine in between. Kesselring was resting his men as much as he could without angering Gehring. So finally, around 3 p.m., he made his move, but it wasn't a crafty one. With only a handful of bombers, escorted by his entire ME-109 fighter force, just over 500 aircraft, they all left Calais and headed for the southeast corner of Kent, as well as for the airfields just south of London. It didn't take Park long to realize what was happening, and although he had 13 squadrons in the air, he ordered them not to engage. But the order did not come quickly enough, and there were some skirmishes. 85 Squadron was bounced and quickly lost three hurricanes. Meanwhile, 603 Squadron lost two Spitfires and would lose two more that afternoon during small-scale German fighter sweeps. But the Luftwaffe suffered double the RAF losses on this gambit. Losses for the day were 9 for the RAF and 17 for the Luftwaffe. Total reported losses to date were 365 and 665, respectively. That night, the bombing was back up again, the targets being in the southwest, Wales, and the Midlands. Though the Midlands attacks seemed to be diversionary, as attacks were concentrated on Liverpool and Manchester to the west. At Liverpool, electricity and water mains were taken offline, as were some rail lines, due to the high explosive bombs. Scotland was spared that night. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity, and another with Merrill. And I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. 
And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Mine Lane was plotted off Plymouth to the southwest, but there were no interceptions. Amazingly, civilian deaths were relatively light at around 35, but there were no less than 257 injuries by the next morning. One possible reason for the lower-than-expected death toll was the decoy fires lit near cities to simulate burning urban areas. Officially, they were called Q-sites, but as the war went on, the different types and locations of fires were simply called starfish sites. That night of the 29th was one of the worst for British convoys. U-boat 100 sank five steamers from convoy OA-204, about 150 miles northwest of Ireland. At least another three British ships would be lost that night. Friday, August 30th, was the day that Hitler decided to play his last trump card. He was still not convinced of the Luftwaffe's success of destroying Fighter Command, his number one condition for Operation Sea Line. It's true that bombs had been falling on London, but they were mistakes and never concentrated. These two aspects were about to become official policy. Kesselring, for his part, had his own, though much smaller, last card to play. He had hesitated to use it due to the exhaustion of his men, but Finer Command, whom he respected, was still in this fight. That had to end, and the weather for the day was on his side. Fighter Command had come to expect three attacks a day, with a few hours in between, but now Kesselring would change that up with a new wave of bombers and fighters coming over the channel every 30 minutes. Of course, Fighter Command had no idea what was coming. The day started off with the normal reconnaissance flights, and then ships in the channel were attacked. Kesselring wasn't changing his tactics back to starving Britain out. That was the U-boat's job. These were merely feints that would hopefully draw Park's attention to the channel. The real attack would come next. And soon the fighters were coming over, alone at first. Park would have been happy to ignore them. But then, escorted bomber groups started crossing over as well. Fighter Command wouldn't realize it at first, but almost every airfield south of London, at least in the southeast, was going to be hit today. The plotter's screens were full, and so, meaningful plotting, in that they could guess where the Germans were going, was made impossible. By 11 a.m., Park had every fighter in the air. By that same time, 48 observer posts 
had witnessed combat above them. As intense as this was for both sides, it was still only a feint by Kesselring. The largest one yet, but still a distraction. He was just waiting to see what opportunities came open as the day went on. Surely holes were being torn in the British radar screen, and Kesselring would use that to hit whatever airfields he could. The first hole was at Biggin Hill. 19 Squadron from 12 Group was supposed to be covering that airfield, but a stoffel of JU-88s got by them. Fortunately for the RAF personnel there, the bombs were mostly dropped on the village as opposed to the airfield, which was horrible for the civilians, but a relief in military terms. Just to the west of Biggin Hill, the airfield at Detling was hit as well. Some 50 bombs were dropped there, and the damage was enough to put the RAF base out of action until the next morning. Hornchurch, north of Deadling, across the Thames, was hit as well, but the damage was less severe. However, 222 Squadron, which had just arrived at Hornchurch the day before, was bounced by 109s. They were behind the times, with flying a standard three-vic formation, with a weaver behind them. The weaver's plane was damaged, and he had to force land, but the others who were in front of him were not so lucky. Kenley was also hit that morning. Based there was 235 Squadron, which had just arrived the previous day, and they were all newbies. Not wanting to leave them to the mercy of the 109s, Sandy Sanders did not follow his squadron of 615 as they were rotated out. He and a few others stayed behind to give 235 the benefit of their experience. But what Sanders' superiors did not know was that he recently met a girl and was only too happy to stay behind in the teeth of the tiger. Love does that to a young man. But the experienced hands could not help 235 that day, as three hurricanes were lost, along with two pilots, around 10.50 that morning. Just after 11 a.m., two more waves of bombers and fighters came over the channel. Of the thousands of bombs dropped that day, the most important one was the bomb that took the Kent power grid offline. The entire Kent radar chain was unusable, for the rest of the day. A very large hole was indeed ripped open, but Kesselring was never fully aware of it. Around noon, yet another wave of 100-plus bombers and their escorts launched themselves at southeast Britain and made for Dover. They were not able to penetrate, or perhaps they were not supposed to, but they kept Park, his staff, and pilots amounting to 16 squadrons, busy and up in the air, where the 109s could get at them. They were gone by 12.30, and it was then that Fighter Command's plotters took note that some of the fighters over Calais were there just to protect their returning aircraft. There was no way the Luftwaffe could have known that Park did not want his men pursuing raiders over the channel. If Kesselring had known that, he could have used those fighters for the attack as well. There was a short break then, but then the feints continued, and so 
Fighter Command had to respond. So when four squadrons drove off 60-plus aircraft around 2.30 that afternoon, it was seen as a victory. But really, it was just part of Kesselring's ploy to keep the British pilots busy, make them tired, and get them used to responding to anything he sent over. Around 4 o'clock that afternoon, it was time to step up the intensity again, as 60-plus Heiko bombers, with their escorts, crossed over the Thames. Park, on seeing this, called on 12 Group for help. 242 was one of the squadrons to respond, from Duxford. It was mostly made up of Canadians, who had been roughed up over France. So, Douglas Bader was put in charge of them, and soon morale was high, and they were looking for their chance. It had finally come, and leading the way, Bader and his were able to bounce several ME-110s. But not every squadron could be as lucky. 253 Squadron would lose six Spitfires, have one more damaged, and one pilot killed. The German formation split once over the Thames, with half going for the Vauxhall Works at Lutton, and the rest for the Handley Page Factory at Ratlet. There, the new Halifax Heavy Bomber was being constructed. The British fighters patrolling the nearby airfields were being wasted, as Kesselring avoided the obvious targets. When all was done, there was some damage at Ratlet, but bomber production was not affected. At Lutton, the damage should have been greater, but the bombers rushed their approach a bit. However, casualties were inflicted. The price for this raid was six Heinkels and five ME-110s being lost. Biggin Hill was to be targeted again that afternoon, and the bomber group used was relatively small, but with the radar being sketchy in the area, the raiders were able to come in undetected. They flew in to about a thousand feet and dropped 16 bombs. Again, a relatively small number. But those 16 bombs were enough. By the time the bombers were flying away, as unhindered as when they came in, they had destroyed one hangar, the workshops, some supply huts, the cookhouse, the transport yard, the sergeant's mess, the barracks, and the WAF quarters. Telephone lines, gas, water, and electricity mains were all ruptured. But again, one bomb was more important than the others, as it landed on top of an air raid shelter, which killed 39 men. The face of the British defense was changing, with a debut of another squadron, Squadron 303 consisted of Poles who had come over after their country was occupied, and they were itching to get into the fight, but to date had to settle for practice interceptions with Blemens. Today, they were out with their squadron leader, Kellett, doing the same thing about 4.35 p.m., when one of the Polish pilots spotted German bombers near Ratlet. He tried to get the attention of his leader, but Kellett responded, by telling them their job was now to protect the Blemens until they got home. But pilot Peskevich had had enough of this and went after the closest Dornier. He got close and let loose. 
Soon the bomber started smoking and then began its last dive. Kellett got them home, thought about doing some serious chewing out, but then asked for 303 Squadron to be activated. This was an important moment for Fighter Command, because the number of planes wasn't the issue. For Dowling and the other leaders, it was coming down to available, trained pilots and much-needed leaders. And in late August and beyond, more foreign nationals were becoming activated to help defend Britain's coasts. Still, the regular waves of German bombers and fighters kept coming over the channel until late evening. The day ended, and Fighter Command had given a good account of themselves, even though there was no way they could have known what was coming. But it was just beginning. Losses for the day were 25 for the RAF and 36 for the Luftwaffe. Total reported losses to date were 390 and 701, respectively. That night, the raids were heavy again, as Liverpool suffered for the third night in a row from massive bombing. But the raids that night covered not only industrial centers in the Midlands, not only London, but also each fighter command airfield that could be found. London was having to adjust to a new night routine. Some of the London areas that were hit were Pimlico, Finchley, Paddington, Highgate, and Hendon. But what shook up the Londoners even more as they woke up and walked out into the streets were the unexploded bombs sprinkled about. And the capital could have been hit much harder. Even though Hitler and Kesselring were on the same page, but for different reasons, Gehring was not. If they had to switch their bombing to the capital, then clearly he had failed his Fuhrer for the second time. The first was at Dunkirk, when he failed to destroy the trapped BEF. But by that morning, at least 70 people had died, with another 327 more injured. Out over the waters, German U-boats sank five British ships and damaged three more. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The last day of August of 1940 had a haze over the Dover Straits, as well as the Thames, and this would affect the Observer Corps in trying to assist Fighter Command. Kesselring sent out the usual reconnaissance flights early that morning, but even these were mere distractions for his plans for the day. It was going to be another day of sledgehammer blows for Fighter Command and their airfields. By working through the night, at an inhuman rate, the Kent radar station was back up, as were many surrounding airstrips. The areas around the airstrips were blackened messes, but they were operational. Kent's plotters got an early start to their day as they picked up four formations coming across the channel around 8 a.m. But this was just one of Kesselring's tricks 
as the formations were comprised only of fighters. The trick was discovered early, but not early enough. The British and Allied pilots were called back, but not before one squadron, made up of inexperienced Canadians, got bounced. They lost three aircraft in mere moments. Of course, the more experienced 56 Squadron didn't have any better luck as they were trying to deflect over 200 German aircraft over Essex, which is to the east of London. As had been happening so often of late, with the sheer amount of combat, two veteran British fighter commanders were among the casualties. One was wounded and would be out for a few weeks, but the other one died. Again, and this was typical, 56 Squadron was beyond exhausted and had been at this since July. They were moved north the next day. The 200 or so raiders moved on. Some went to North Weald and the rest made for Debden. The bomber group that was making for Debden was then attacked by 111 Squadron, which was now based out of one of Debden's satellite airfields. The Dorniers, escorted by ME-110s, got through and destroyed what remained of the structures at Debden. However, again, the airfield was still operational, if ugly to look at. The other group of raiders made it to North Weald, dropped about a 100 bombs, but again, the airfield itself was still usable. Both raiding groups were attacked on their way home, but inflicted almost as many casualties as they suffered. It was a slugfest, and it was a draw. While this was going on, another raid was approaching Duxford, further north. This was the first attack on a 12-group sector station, and probably because of this, their squadrons were not prepared to take off. So, 19 Squadron, operating from the Duxford satellite station at Falmere, took off and engaged the Germans. Or rather, they tried to engage, since their Spitfires had the cannon like the ME-109s, but the cannons jammed with each attempt. And this was not the first time this had happened. And, like before, Spitfires and pilots were lost. And it was not yet 9 a.m. As hectic as all this was for Fighter Command, and there would be another raid on East Church that morning, destroying what little there was left above the ground there, it was all to set up the main attack for the day. Kesselring would launch the bulk of his bombers with escorts at Biggin Hill. But not putting all his eggs in one basket, he would simultaneously send Air Pro Boons Group 210 to Croydon, and a third, though smaller, force to go after Hornchurch. Never mind that Croydon was a part of London. Those worries were now all behind Luflot II's commander. So, just after noon, many large formations left the airspace over Calais and made for the southeast corner of Britain. 85 Squadron took off from Croydon, led by Peter Townsend, but the 210 group was able to sneak in and launch their attack just as Pete and his boys were taken off. The Germans headed for home with 85 Squadron right behind them. Pete was angry, and that anger clouded his judgment. All he could focus on was getting in close to make a kill. But the British fighters followed too long and got in too close, and lost three aircraft 
of their own. In return, they were only able to shoot down one bomber, and Pete was one of the RAF casualties. After crash landing in some woods near Hawkehurst, he limped his way to the nearby village. He first came upon the Royal Oak, was treated to a pint, and then taken away to deal with the pain in his left foot. That pain turned out to be a cannon splinter that had to be removed at Croydon General Hospital, along with the affected toe. He would be out for two weeks, and so 85 Squadron would be without their leader for that time. The payoff for all this, the attack on Biggin Hill, took place as the attack on Croydon was unfolding. The Luftwaffe was using what was becoming a standard tactic of flying up the Thames all massed together and then breaking for their respective targets. But this time, most of the formation stayed together and headed for Biggin Hill. They were confident in their numbers and used the standard bombing approach. They flew in at over 12,000 feet and dropped their loads, letting the 109s and 110s handle the British fighters. And all went according to plan. Their bombs hit the living quarters and cratered the runway. Again. But also again, every hand available would help in filling those many holes by the next morning. Heroics on both sides were becoming routine. The main attack for the day had gotten through, had been a success, more or less, but now they had to make it home. As the German bombers and their escorts turned their noses south by southeast, they were set upon by 253 Squadron, who were out for blood. 253 had been busy, like many other squadrons that morning, and had lost their leader, Flight Officer Starr. The man who had trained him, now acting squadron leader Cleve, was back in charge. He had heard a rumor that Starr had been shot while floating down on his parachute. Cleve was flying with murder in his eyes, but should have been more dispassionate, if such a thing was possible. So he missed the ME-109 that was able to sneak up on him from below and behind. The Messerschmitt's bullets or cannon shots caused Cleve's aircraft to catch on fire. Cleve managed to bail out, but was badly burned. And he would soon become the chief guinea pig at Archibald McIndoe's East Grinstead Burns Unit. And he would be there for many months. The bomber group that would attack Hornchurch flew in with the raiding party destined for Biggin Hill. And when it passed by that station, the plotters were temporarily confused. Adding to the confusion, haze overhead would not allow the observers to pin down their heading. Meanwhile, at Hornchurch, 54 Squadron was still on the ground, as was 603, which would be leaving that day for their new posting. When it became clear that Hornchurch was the target, 54 was scrambled, but ended up taking off as bombs were falling down around them. In fact, the bombs were so close that the last three aircraft trying to take off had a bomb land among them, and the blast flipped their planes over. One of these aircraft was being flown by Alan Deere, who had already used up eight of his nine lives in the last few weeks. The momentum he had built up had kept his plane going, but now it was upside down 
and his canopy was plowing a line down the runway. He held on to straps, pulling himself up, so his head, already grazing the ground, would not be, well, you can imagine the rest. The plane finally came to a stop, and one of the other pilots helped him out of his wrecked aircraft. But it was another write-off. The bombers were leaving, thinking they had done great damage to the airfield below. But because they released their loads from 15,000 feet, as opposed to the standard 12,000 feet, they were off the mark. Most of the bombs had landed on the edge of the airstrip. Again, it looked ghastly from above, but Hornchurch was, or would soon be, operational. Kesselring was almost finished for the day, but not quite. He had quick and successful strikes made at some coastal radar stations launched that early afternoon, and he knew from experience that they would be operational again in a few hours. But that was all the time that he needed. He was going to hit Hornchurch and Biggin Hill again. The thinking was that their defenses had to be down at Hornchurch, so a large formation was not used. The bombs dropped that evening, made a few more craters, and destroyed two Spitfires on the ground. But this time, 603 Squadron, who had not left for their new base yet, were able to lift off as the Germans came in. A total of seven German aircraft were shot down, but amazingly, five of those seven belonged to pilot Brian Carberry. All five were later confirmed. It can be imagined that Carberry never had to buy himself a drink again. The attack on Biggin Hill was much more successful. The Dorniers came in low and fast. Their speed made it hard for the A-guns, and the British fighters didn't have time to take off to stop them. Their bombs managed to hit the three remaining hangars and cut telephone lines, which had just been repaired. But more importantly, the bombers also managed to hit the operations room. Around 6.30 p.m., the RAF station at Kenley was told that Biggin Hill's lines were down. Could they please take their squadrons for a while? So 79 Squadron was sent to Croydon, but 72 Squadron did not get the message and was somehow able to land at Biggin Hill. But their new home was completely wrecked. Again, superhuman efforts got Biggin Hill operational by the next morning. There was death and destruction surrounding the place, but it was still in the fight. Churchill spent the afternoon at 11 Group's operations room at Uxbridge. Again, he had that knack for being in the right place at the right time. He watched as the controllers decided which of the numerous raids coming in were the more threatening and should be intercepted. The other raid informations, well, it was hoped that they would not cause too much damage or that they could be hit on their way home. But the Prime Minister was more concerned about the growing number of civilian casualties, and now he could see that Fighter Command was using everything they had just to defend themselves, much less going after bombers that would hit non-military targets that, frankly, didn't affect their ability to perform. Losses for the day were 39 for the RAF and 41 for the Luftwaffe. Total reported losses to date 
were 429 and 742, respectively. Sperla took over the night operations, and Liverpool was hit for the fourth time with massive bombing raids, as were Portsmouth, Manchester, Bristol, Gloucester, and Worcester. Parts of London were bombed as well, but the damage to the capital was less than the other cities mentioned. Some 300 bombers flew over Britain that night. By morning, there would be around 50 civilian deaths, with another 250 more injured. That evening, Churchill invited Downing to Checkers for dinner, but the two quickly got into a debate about shooting men on parachutes. Churchill was shocked by Downing's opinion that, yes, they were still a combatant. While this argument was going on, a German pilot, Hasso von Perthes, was taken to a hospital in Sussex. He had bailed out during the day as his plane was damaged. A few hours later, he died with numerous bullet wounds to his legs. The fight was being taken to the civilians and getting personal at the same time. It was probably not a coincidence that it was 303 Squadron's first day. The Poles remembered the pain they felt as their country was occupied and their capital was bombed. Kesselring knew his men were tired. He and his staff were tired. There wasn't anyone he saw or talked to that wasn't tired, but he knew. Only by keeping up this level of combat would he win the day. And now he was free to go after London. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. I just wanted to give everybody an idea of the books that I'm using for the Battle of Britain series. Um, a lot of you have written in, and I just wanted to let everyone know. Um, some of my main sources are The Most Dangerous Enemy by Stephen Bungay. Bungay, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Uh, it's an amazing book, and he does a really good job. And if you take that one and add it to James Holland's The Battle of Britain, you're really good a good feel because they kind of both focus on different aspects besides the chronological events that happened. As far as the um, number of planes shot down, I've been going with an older book, The Battle of Britain, by Richard Townsend Bickers. Of course, each book that you read, they're going to have slightly different numbers, so the numbers that I use in the podcast should be considered conservative. Of course, there are some other books that I have, um, but to be honest with you, I don't use them too much. I kind of wish I hadn't bought them. Um, the writers were all over the place, or their agenda was obvious, so I tried to stay away from that as best I could. So I will end this episode by saying, um, and I'll be stealing the thunder from Laszlo Montgomery of the China History Podcast, but he's in Philadelphia or New York or Texas or wherever he's at right now. Um, we're going to be getting together in September. I'm going to be flying out there, and we're going to do a show or two together, maybe do a show on kind of our podcasting experience and all the stuff that we've been through and learned and stuff we've learned from the listeners. So that should be a lot of fun, and we'll be getting that out um, sometime in late summer. So for now, thank you for listening and for your patience, and take care.